really curious as to if you're like me, like most Canadians, you do a lot of your banking and financial attractions online and uh, how you're finding things in that regard. Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. Listen to Canadian Intelligence, eh? Conversations with practitioners about all things national security. The world's a very different place from when I started working. I started my first job at 13 years old as a sort of a handyman for a set of lawyers, and I got paid $1.92 an hour uh, in cash every two weeks. A lot of money back then, by the way. Fast forward, oh, what, 50 years later, and the world is a very different place. As I mentioned in my introduction, uh, everything is online these days. You do your banking online, you pay your bills online, you, you e-transfer people online. People that buy my book have been sending me e-transfers since January. And yet it strikes me as this is a potentially very dangerous world in terms of using the internet and social media to transfer money. It comes as a surprise to no one that some of the more nefarious actors in the world, including criminals and terrorist organizations, have caught on to this and are taking advantage of it. I thought then that I would bring into the conversation somebody who knows a lot more about money laundering and terrorist financing than I do. So I'm very pleased to welcome Archie Alafries. He's a retired member of the, of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, who served most, most of his career in national security. He is a threat finance specialist. He's published. He's now a senior fellow at the Global Peace Institute. He's also affiliated with an organization called uh, IOSI Global. He knows a lot more about this stuff than I do, and he's going to walk us through it. So, Archie, uh, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Hello, Phil. Well, thanks for uh, inviting me to this podcast. It certainly is a very uh, interesting topic with a lot of global applications today. You've used the term threat finance in some of your writing, and I'm curious if you could walk my listeners through what do you mean by threat finance? Um, that's a very good question, Phil. Like I, you know, thought about that myself and was trying to declutter it in my head. But you know, uh, I'll try my best to, to to explain it. Basically, it's industry speak today, describing uh, adversarial financing. You know, when we use the word adversarial, it seems not to be a Canadian term, but more of you know our friends down south. Mm-hmm. But more widely, um, I would include in this category illicit or ill-gotten wealth, um, which are derivatives of proceeds of crime. And I think that's where the basis of what we believe to be um, you know threat finance. But the definition goes on because. Um, Threat finance could represent the strategic placement of funds by political adversaries, for example. Um, While some threat finances are not strictly illegal, uh, they could or may represent significant concern to uh, a country's economy or, you know, uh, even their national sovereignty. Because quite obviously, if you can't control your economy, then you know, that puts your sovereignty into into doubt. Going back to the sort of career that you had with the RCMP, then, we know that, that money is moved around in the blink of an eye. I don't know what the figures are. You probably know better than I do, but I'm sure it's at billions or trillions of dollars are moved around every day. I, I see these reports about stock markets, for, for example, where, where computer programs are trading stocks that are faster than the human can actually react to. From your perspective, Archie, at former the RCMP, how hard is it to identify the, the, the nature and scale of this prog- problem? And more importantly, how do you counteract it? Well, um, I would say that 
you know, tracking these nefarious funds uh, are between very difficult and extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the reality of it is, is that, you know, like the global structure is such a way that um, we're using uh, antiquated tools mm-hmm. to, to deal with a problem. So let me walk you through this, uh, you know, a little bit. The, the current global compliance regime is based on what we call the 40 plus nine recommendations. And I'm talking about the, you know, the financial industry as opposed to uh, law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So this 40 plus nine recommendations were handed down by what we call the Financial Action Task Force. And that's the Global Money Laundering and Terrorist Financing Watchdog. It came into being in 1989, but it was, you know, it took a decade uh, from its initial inception as a G7 uh, initiative 10 years earlier in 1979. You know, this really meant to be an annual economic summit um, or thereabouts. So the FATF, uh, through its work by 1989, uh, presented its first 40 recommendations to address money laundering. Um, And it wasn't after the attack of 911 that they added the further nine recommendations which specifically addressed the financing of, uh, of terrorism mm-hmm. almost exclusively. So this is what the industry calls the 40 plus 9. Now, right. in the AML world or the anti-money laundering world, this uh, particular regime was further reinforced by what's called the Wolfsburg AML principles, anti-money laundering principles, which were created in 2000 as a result of 13 global banks getting together at Castle Wolfsburg in Switzerland and creating a framework, a platform, and a set of guidelines to manage financial risk in private banking. So you can tell that this is all, um, you know, uh, a process-driven system. Mm-hmm. And um, how effective is it? Well. I mean, it has its positive metrics, but it's easily defeated by uh, infrastructures that are created to defeat it. Mm-hmm. So, so now what happens is we have, you know, and, and, and on top of that, you know, we're looking at this 40 plus 9 and specifically the plus 9, which I lived on for uh, 14 years of my career in anti-terrorist financing. And... Um, the the issue with, with this plus nine and the whole concept of anti-terrorist financing in terms of the global regime was that it was simply piggybacked on anti-money laundering infrastructure or architecture. Okay. okay. So, you know, and you and I know that these are two very, very different things. Exactly. Um, and, you know, we're still, uh, industry-wise, we're still fighting that battle, if you can believe it. Where um, over the last 20 years or so, um, these certification programs have delved more um, inwardly uh, into the, the processes as opposed to people really understanding um, you know, the concept of, of threat finance and where it's going in the future. So, yeah. sorry, so, go ahead. No, no, go, no, go ahead, please, continue. So the end result of that is, you know, I don't know how else to, to describe it, uh, but 
look, uh, you were there in the industry the same time I was when mm-hmm. you were working for the service. Uh, mm-hmm. And if we were to rely on um, uh, figures from Stuart Bell in, in 2006, that uh, the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam were you know, required $300 million to fight their war against the Sri Lankan mm-hmm. government. Mm-hmm. And most of that was passing through right underneath my very nose. Wow. Boy, that sure, that sure, I think, puts a point on it, Archie. Without, you know, dismissing or undermining what the work that you did, the RCMP and your colleagues, would you say that in, you know, late 2021, that when it comes to this threat financing, be it terrorist financing or money laundering or whatever, nefarious actors raising and sending funds, are we constantly in a game of catch up? And if we were to call a spade a spade, would we pretty well acknowledge that the bad guys really are they have uh, they really have a step up on us and that they are more or less acting freely in this environment or is that am i being too uh, too cruel here actually if you just took the question mark out of what you said phil you basically <laughs> said you know said it all now now let's go and take a look at what currently is occurring you know like uh, here in uh, 2021 in british columbia where i reside and we're looking at the cullen commission and its investigation into money laundering in the uh, you know in the casinos real estate uh, luxury vehicles right. and i was part of that you know the 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 uh, earlier um, the the precursor uh, uh, investigation um, into uh, luxury vehicles and, and real estate, right. and um, look at the look at what what's coming out of the media today from the Cullen Commission. You know, it's saying that the police today are are totally incapable hmm. of of uh, conducting these types of investigations anymore. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And it's not just you know the the police's fault. I mean, from twenty thirteen. Um, because uh, because of the politics of the day, uh, the RCMP lost its uh, you know significant amount of funding at the uh, at, at the federal and contract levels, mm-hmm. which forced all the specialized sections to collapse into more generalized sections. Right. And of course, right. you know we lost all the expertise. That's one, and there are many more um, reasons uh, that that just. Uh, combined to create this type of effect today. Would it be fair to say as well, Archie, that when it comes to things like terrorist financing and money laundering, um, pardon me, no one gets hurt. Bombs don't go off. People don't get killed. And so from the public perspective, it, it we kind of know what's happening, but it's in the background. It'll probably happen anyway. And that's what I'm getting at. Is there do you sense that from a prioritization perspective, whether it's the RCMP or other agencies that are, are you know, that are looking at bad guys doing bad things in general, that this is seen as much like a, well, we'll get to when we get to it, but the first first things first, we don't want anybody to get killed. We don't want bombs going off. We don't want planes flying into buildings. Has it been sort of relegated to a second tier in terms of operational priorities? For the most part, it, it has, you know, evidenced by the fact that um, we really technically don't have an anti-terrorist financial investigation unit anywhere uh, in Canada anymore. And neither do the, you know, the, does the RCMP have the expertise uh, in board to, to boot it up. You're looking at how important is the disruption of terrorist finance. Well, let's walk back to, you know, terrorist uh, event uh, pre-incident indicators. And we modeled this uh, around the time um, just after 911, looking mm-hmm. at 
looking at uh, you know the behavior of uh, terrorist organizations. So walking through the steps, we have an ideology, you know, the motivation and the intentions. Um, and then the next step after that would be the recruiting right. um, of uh, of the people with you know like minded uh, ideas. And then you have the fundraising, right? Because after the fundraising comes in all the operational stuff, which is you know the uh, forged identification. We've seen that in investigations, um, the reconnaissance of targets, target selection, training, um, establishment of safe houses, uh, acquisition of uh, ammunition and other uh, materials or bomb making materials, uh, prepositioning or the logistics of uh, materials and, and and actors into the specific uh, locations. Uh, the final reconnaissance and the deployment and ultimately uh, the action of the offense. And when you look right. at where fundraising and, and financing is very low in the totem pole, mm-hmm. you know, so think of, uh, think of a startup incubator software company that had great ideas, but could never raise the, 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 the amount or the seed financing to get it out into the marketplace. This is mm-hmm. how important financing is to, um, you know, to, to a terrorist organization. But you and I know today that you know your, your classic uh, sort of terrorism or uh, terrorist group um, are no longer created this way, right? Right, and they've right. they've they've devolved. So, um, notwithstanding, I mean, you know, when we go back to threat financing, and you know, and and, and your question, well, how difficult is it really to track? Uh, threat finances. Well, you and I know that, uh, you know, some of the uh, biggest conductors of this type of, uh, of activity are governments and neo-governments or yeah. uh, agencies that, uh, that, that support them, uh, which have uh, incredibly large infrastructure yeah. um, and that easily cut through or walk through these compliance people that are still very process driven and internally mm-hmm. focused. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah. I, I, I'm so glad you raised this point about, about financing. Cause I, I was going to push back on it a little bit, you know, in terms of you're right. The Tamil tigers, of course, the, L, the liberation timers of talent, the LTTE were very big in Canada in the eighties and nineties. Stuart Bell wrote a lot about this in his first book, cold terror, uh, you know, amongst the large Tamil diaspora community here in Canada, a lot of them were, asked or let's face it pressured threatened to support the ltt actions back in sri lanka and that's one end of the spectrum on the other end you get cases that you and i probably both worked on things people like the toronto 18 and other so-called lone actor terrorists these days where let's face it archie um you know you don't have to be a millionaire to walk into a train station with a knife or even the toronto 18 i mean you know they were selling um you know, trying to raise money and, and, and get fertilizer and stuff. But this was not a multi-million dollar plot. It, does that, is that making things complicated where you've got law enforcement agencies who are involved in this? And when push comes to shove, you know, I could, as, as a former friend of mine who worked in, in the Toronto uh, region of CISA said, you know, he could build a bomb with what he's got in his wallet, which was like $30, a really, a really inexpensive bomb. So how does the fact that terrorism is now being done on the cheap, so you know, so so called cheap. We had a recent attack uh, in uh, New Zealand, in Auckland, by a guy with a knife who wanted to join ISIS. So it, basically, it's cost free. There's no there's no financing to that. How does that complicate things these days? You think? 
you know, and you're absolutely right with respect to, you know, the cost of, uh, you know, the terrorist acts. I mean, uh, look at it. Uh, 2005, uh, or sorry, yeah, 2000, I believe it was 2005, if I remember correctly, London bus bombing. Yep. And, you know, that was financed by a defaulted student loan. Wow. Right? Of less than, of, of, of about, about 8,000 British sterling. So and 12,000 Canadian or so, yeah. Not a lot of money. Well, yeah, and, and probably less so then uh, because, yeah. of, because of the conversion rate. Yeah. Uh, when we look at the uh, Madrid train bombing the, of the previous year, that was a hand-to-hand exchange of, uh, of narcotics to explosives. Yes, that's and right. You're, and you're looking, you know, and gee, where, what part of our architecture uh, will detect that? And and the answer and, and the answer is no. Yes. Uh, when we look at the you know the Bali bombing in 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 two thousand, um, I believe it was two thousand two. Two thousand two. Yep. Yeah. Two thousand two. Um, that was uh, a thirty thousand dollar. That you know Jakarta Marriott uh, was was uh, thirty thousand uh, dollars. That uh, in terms of estimation, um, Bali uh, nightclub bombing twenty thousand. That was uh, in two thousand two. Um, and the 1998 Africa embassy bombings was estimated to be just around ten thousand uh, U.S. dollars. This is almost pocket change in some ways. Then, yeah, it is. Uh, Mumbai, you know, was a, was a bigger one at eighty five thousand. But then the it, that was two thousand eight. But the twenty twelve Boston Marathon only uh, only cost two thousand. Yeah. The Westgate Mall um, uh, in Nairobi in 2013 was 5,000. So, yeah, there is a limitation. I think when we deal with threat finances uh, at the level that we do is we want to address the organizational level of, uh, of, uh, you know, of these activities, uh, which provides the capacity for them to, um, to spread more widely their, their ideology. So it needs, it's not, you know, it's not the end all and be all of defenses by, uh, you know, by all means. It is just a small component, but it's something uh, notwithstanding that we need to, uh, to really master. Would it be fair to say, Archie, given that like in a country like Canada, for example, let's face it, we, we don't see a lot, a lot of terrorism. I mean, I wrote my most recent book. We've only had, you know, maybe a couple dozen attacks in, in 154 years of history. We're not Somali. We're not Afghanistan where terrorist attacks are taking place all the time. And a lot of Western countries, I think, are in very similar boats to this. Would it be fair to say that from a threat financing perspective, from a law enforcement angle, that the the prioritization should be more things like organized crime and, and those types of groups that are trying to use financial systems to gain rather than terrorists? That's a very good question, Phil, because... Um... Again, you and I, uh, going back uh, a little bit over a decade ago, we're examining uh, convergence theory. We're talking yes. about the convergence of, uh, of uh, transnational crime and, uh, and terrorism. And now we see state actors of terrorism engaged in transnational activities in Latin America. Yes, yes. Uh, very well published and something that we should have and could have predicted. Um, and why it was so important to to notate that then and address today is because we feel the influence of, uh, of, of those organizations and let's name them. It's, it's Hezbollah yeah. and the IRGC Quds Force. Yes, absolutely. Uh, present here in, in, in Canada. Um, it's very hard to read, um, 
you know, the uh, methodology of, uh, of uh, Hezbollah, because uh, there's a lot of it that's underground, but, but the Quds Forts or the QF, I estimated up to about 10 years ago, were moving a uh, billion dollars across Canada in what I call a cloud economy. A billion dollars? A billion dollars. And that was a long time ago. Uh, my that was my ten year estimate, uh, wow. you know, from an estimate from ten years ago. I haven't been able to, um, you know, to go back because uh, you know I've not had access to uh, th- that financial intelligence or have not requested that type of financial intelligence from uh, from from Egmont or um, or FinTrack. So, <laughs> I hate to to ask you this, Archie, but. Talking to you today and listening to what you have to say, I, I, I get the impression that, that things aren't good and there's no real hope of them getting better anytime soon. Am I just being a, and I'm a glass kind of half full kind of guy. I mean, <laughs> is, this a, is this a realistic view on, on just how bad the situation is and how unprepared and under-resourced we are to deal with it? Um, you know, yeah. Yes, the short answer to that is yes, and we're almost at the mercy of that. You know that thank God terrorists don't really hate Canada, and I'm yeah. sure you've had this impression yeah. over yeah. the last number of years. Um, and of course, there's a lot of tri- theatrics in you know in the world uh, that we call generally as terrorism. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, between, you know, between the trade craft of security uh, agencies, between the, um, uh, you know, the, the foreign policies of certain countries. And we watched how this, this that was our job was to yeah. was to watch these things and and pay attention to to those things that would really cause us harm. Yeah. But generally, what we have is in, you know, in the finance world and in the world of like, uh, you know, threat geopolitics. It's it, it's the wide, wide world. Yeah, um, exactly. And uh, I mean, just look at you know the the whole issue over uh, Afghanistan and and, mm-hmm. and its withdrawal. I mean, yeah. you, ha- you have to question yourself if you don't know the answer to why the CIA director would be meeting with the Taliban. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. that may be vital to your daily life and exactly. and how you. And how you understand the world. Well, and, and as I'm sure you would agree, Archie, that the whole Afghanistan shit show where after 20 years, we're basically handing the, the keys to the kingdom back to the very people we try to get out 20, you know, anyhow, let's not go down that pathway. So Archie, you're now the chairman for iOS, IOSI Global Organization for Security Intelligence. What exactly is that organization and, and, and what does it do? Well, the IOSI is, uh, I mean, the acronym stands for the International Organization for Security and Intelligence. And um, just to go back a little bit in history here, they, you know, its founders were, were uh, a group of people that I was assisting on and off uh, over a number of years because this organization was actually born in Canada. Oh, um, cool. But what it is, it's a global nonprofit organization comprised of security and intelligence practitioners. It just so happens that, you know, as this network grew, it, it, it um, invited more of the same type of people that are involved in the same industry, uh, which was security and intelligence globally. Now, you know, uh, I was brought on to chair the board uh, last June. Uh, I was... It, it's an honorary uh, a position, but I also found that it, it had at that time around uh, 25,000 25, members already. 
mm-hmm. and follow in you know and, and and a lot more followers around the world through all various uh, media platforms that it existed so what was initially a social network for these practitioners i we we now want to evolve it into a global marketplace for uh these very specialized talents and we're developing business lines along you know uh, crypto recovery um risk management of what what I call gray finances, intellectual property, ransomware prevention, you know, things that that help the public and educate the public. Uh, Ultimately, we just want to be an international conduit for these types of non-governmental investigative services. Wow, what a very noble and uh, a great thing to do, Raj. Like you said, people like me, even people that worked in the business for more than three decades, do not have a a good understanding of what this is all about. And so, you know, kudos to you and the people that you work with to try to, try to educate people. Now, Archie, in the past 48 hours, um, you and I have been in touch, um, sort of parallel to this podcast today. And uh, I got a request from a friend who had lost big time uh, in Bitcoin investments. There was some kind of a scam. This person, I won't, I won't obviously name the person or the amount, but it was significant. In your experience... Is this something that happens really, really frequently? I mean, this has nothing to do with terrorism, I don't think, anything to do with you know money laundering or anything, but it simply points to the amount of nefarious activity online when it comes to financing. In your estimation, just how bad is this problem and how much worse is it going to get? Well, it's, you know, with every bit of advancing technology, it's, it's kind of new territory uh, for enforcement that's already been playing catch up over the last, right. uh, you know, half century. Uh, in the case of, uh, uh, in the case of uh, crypto theft, which is what we're, we're, we're talking about, um, where this is a um, spoofed, uh, you know, investment firm that's been able to, um, attract uh, investors and uh, you know and it's of course socially engineered to keep them investing and right. um, every time you invest and you know a month later you can see your return on the investment it's it's provided to you uh, online uh, or in the database that you can access it's become really sophisticated as you can imagine but the issue here is how can you tell um, what's real and what's not? Where we'll still we're still having those kind of problems, believe it or not, in the general capital markets. Wow. You know, the S the uh, Security Exchange Commission, the SEC in the United States, is all the security commissions here in in Canada through the individual provinces are busy looking at these frauds. You know, the, all the different types of uh, market manipulations, the different types of uh, pump and dumps. Um, mm-hmm. So this 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 um, uh, particular problem will only increase uh, over time because we don't seem to have a strategy to to grapple it. So let's let's look at this one for one um, example that that we're talking about, uh, the one that you referred to me. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, um, we're already in touch with a data analytics company with a very good capacity to to write algorithms on the spot and 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 detect. Um, where these monies could uh, could eventually go, you know. To one of the things that I was talking to them about was that on one of their previous files, they were dealing with uh, uh, an exchange that was in Turkey, mm-hmm. and th- this is where uh, 
it was the recipient of you know of uh, of the cryptocurrency um, that had been used in a ransomware um, uh, operation. But it, when they dialed back through their own analytics, they found that based on the uh, the source IP that it had victimized or attempted to victimize 68,000 other IP addresses. Wow. So this is one, one operation. And, you know, so of, the question that I would want to have answered is, of the 68,000, how many were actually reported to, to law enforcement? Exactly. Probably not a heck of a lot, right? No, no, not a lot. So there, there remains a very large dark figure, um, you know, in that aspect of uh, of, of the economy that uh, you know we just don't have a, a strategy for. Now, hopefully, because of uh, some of the um, compliance measures uh, that have been put in place, that if you are a legitimate exchange and you you follow the um, uh, the uh, you know the conventions that you would have what they call the KYC and KYT know your client and know yep. your know your transactions you would have recorded uh, whose uh, whose account this is and uh, double checked and verified that information to a true person but that cannot be true uh, in all instances as as you know. Mm-hmm. And therein lies the, the difficulty. So at the beginning of this podcast, you mentioned that um, uh, we're looking at electronic means of investment and, and banking mechanisms and how secure are those. Um, I would say secure enough, but they're imperfect. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, we can implement, we can implement you know, the most uh, uh, secure and effective system out there. It's always the human being that fails in that in that chain. You know, Archie, um, my late mother, uh, God rest her soul, I grew up during the Depression in Montreal in the twenties and thirties, and I think it had a lasting impression on her. She would always keep money around the house uh, in envelopes, and I think it's just it was because she grew up basically with, you know, no two cents to rub together. Knowing what you do, my friend, about terrorist financing and money laundering and nefarious activity online, do you keep a shoebox of cash under your bed? Just curious. <laughs> I do not. I, you know, um, in our profession, that wasn't, you know, uh, you didn't have a lot of excesses to to throw around into shoeboxes. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, some who uses cash nowadays? You know, the other day uh, I was sitting at the, the Metrotown Mall having lunch and, uh, you know, a, a fellow with a disability left a, a, a card that says, you know, if you can assist, could you contribute a few dollars, so on and so forth. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, would, I would have contrib- contributed to him, but I don't carry cash anymore, do you? Yeah, well, I still do. I think I have part of my mother and me still, I've always have a 20 in my wallet, but... You're absolutely right. I think that the you know 99% of all transactions we do at the grocery store or the beer store or whatever, you just whip out your debit card and you know buy. I, I even I'm wearing a Fitbit now, and apparently I can use my Fitbit <laughs> to actually. I'm not going to do that because I'm really conservative, but I think it just goes to show you what you're saying, right? This, we've made it so easy to buy anything, anywhere, anytime, and so surprise, surprise, the bad guys have, have queued onto this too and figured, hey, we can make money that way as well. 
I mean, there are solutions in the horizon if you really want to think about it. Uh, I mean, you know, we talk about uh, fret finances, and we and we look at uh, we look at China. Like China has gone and is going to convert its fiat currency into uh, into digital. Mm-hmm. That gives that affords them the ability to monitor mm-hmm. where each and every RMB goes to. Now, mm-hmm. you know, that's not a perfect solution, no, but, it no. get, but it gets close. Right, right. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd want the Chinese government monitoring my transactions if I was a Uyghur or in Hong Kong or a Tibetan kind of thing. But anyhow, listen, Archie, I, I think we could go on for days uh, talking about these matters. You really provided, I think, a very sobering but a very realistic insight into the nature of this world, what we're doing about it, uh, and the challenges that are still remaining. So on behalf of my listeners, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Uh, thank you very much, Phil. Um, it was a great pleasure. And maybe one of these these days, let's have a beer offline. I'd rather have a beer on the offline world and the online world, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my conversation with Archie Allerfries, former RCMP specialist in money laundering and terrorist financing. What do you think about this whole notion of money moving around and, and the challenges that law enforcement and security intelligence agencies have in monitoring? What... Uh, terrorists and, and criminals are doing with it love to hear your feedback you can reach me on email borealisrisk at gmail.com or on twitter at borealisaves you can also find me on linkedin and facebook if you like the content want to get more you can subscribe go to the website borealisthreatenedrisk.com find a subscription area you get you get the free podcast you get today in terrorism you get quick hits you get all kinds of things free of charge in your inbox as well as a link to my latest book the peaceable kingdom the history of terrorism in canada from confederation of the present which is self-published and therefore available only through me uh, love to hear what you, what you thought about this as well as ideas for other podcasts. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe.